Hi, I'm Anna. And I'm Nina. And we are the founders of the Nordic Business Ethics Network. And this is the Ethics Talk podcast. In this podcast, we discuss hot topics relating to business ethics, compliance and corporate conduct. And we believe in a transparent dialogue around the complexities of doing business ethically. And we talk about both difficult dilemmas in the gray zone and best practices to learn from each other and to build more ethical companies and organizations. If you are interested in learning more about ethical business, both from global but also from a local Nordic perspective, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Ethics Talk podcast. My name is Anna Romberg and I'm here joined by my colleague Nina Ratsula. In today's Ethics Talk, we will talk about how corrupt and illegal behavior is rationalized. Maybe some of you who are listening are familiar with the fraud triangle and you know that rationalization um, of the behavior is one of the three enablers of fraudulent and unethical conduct, and the other ones being pressure and opportunity. And as our honored guest today, we have invited Natalie Engstam Palen. Natalie is the Secretary General at the Swedish Anti-Corruption Institute. She is a well-known advocate for transparent business practices in Sweden. Natalie has received several acknowledgments, such as being awarded to one of the most powerful influencers of the society in 2019 and to one of uh, Sweden's most prominent female leaders in 2020. Wow. So welcome to the Ethics Talk, Natalie. We are so privileged to have you here. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Great. So before we dive into the topic of today, could you, Natalie, please provide uh, some more insights to our listeners about your work and the Swedish Institute Against Bribery? Of course. Uh, the Swedish Anti-Corruption Organization is a non-profit business organization that is working against corruption. And, and this is quite an old organization. It's funded as early as in 1923, which I think is fairly cool, given the fact that the topic of business ethics and, and the knowledge of the importance of anti-corruption is, is, is fairly new, at least when it comes to sustainability, and at least did not get much attention until much later than in the 1920s. Um, just to say, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, so what we do from, from the Institute is that we, uh, work against corruption mostly by two different working methods, where one is by providing information and knowledge through the use of lecturing, um, having a knowledge bank, uh, doing advocacy and, and policy work, um, um, and also arranging seminars and meeting points for people working against corruption. And we also use uh, the method of self-regulation to influence the business sector to act ethically and, and transparently. And for this, we have our own self-regulation um, known as the business code. Um, we have just recently published an update to our business code. The full name is Code Against Corruption in Business Sector that provides more detailed and hands-on guidance on how to work against corruption and how to avoid being corrupt. And we are in the Nordic Business Ethics Network, a very 
happy that we have been able to uh, to collaborate uh, with the institute uh, uh, regarding events. Uh, so that's uh, that's a great great collaboration. At least we have been super happy about that, Natalie. Because, we have as well. <laughs> yeah, because we have the same same aim. And um, a few months ago, uh, you actually re- released a report uh, that's called in Swedish "Tio förklaringsmodeller bakom mutbrott." So, if I freely interpret it to English, it's ten rationalization or explanation models for bribery offenses. And the report. By the way, I think it's a brilliant report. It's such a good read. Um, and it provides insights into how convicted persons, they explain or, and reason around their bribery offenses. And I have the report here in front of me. And, uh, and there are some statements uh, such as, you know, it was, it was just a joke or the loan was just a favor to a friend. And before um, we go into these explanations or perhaps more as it seems, excuses. Uh, could you please explain a bit more about this report, about this research uh, and uh, and some of the findings that we then can dive into uh, more in detail? Sure. Um, what we wanted to do with, with the report was to uh, get and provide a picture of how convicted bribery offenders explained or rationalized their criminal conduct. And, and the way we, we did this was to use material from, from court cases. And we gathered all convictions in Sweden concerning bribery during a period of six years, 2013 to 2019, and then reviewed this material to identify what explanation models were being used. And in total, this this led to 96 court cases concerning convictions, uh, including a total of 138 convicted persons. And based on this this material, the court cases, we identified um, with also comparisons to other research within the field, uh, 10 different explanation models that you can sort the different um, explanations into. Um, and it should also be noted that some persons used more than one explanation to to explain their their criminal behavior, and in those cases we included up to three explanations per person. So in total, the 138 persons included in the study used 230 explanations for their criminal behavior. And I, I know we will shortly dig more into the specific results, but but just to give an o- overview, the two most commonly used explanations, whether on the giving or the receiving side, was a misunderstanding or to blame someone else. And, and the quote that you had in the beginning, the it was just a joke, is an example of misunderstanding. Wow, so you've really done a really, really good job. By the way, is this uh, report free to download for anyone? Yes, of course. It's it's uh, available on our webpage in our knowledge bank under publications. Um, we only have it in Swedish, though, so uh, you can yeah, put it Finns into Google it, Translate. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So that's a good good uh, tip for anyone listening listening to the podcast. So let's let's uh, go into more details in the, into these explanations. So. We commonly hear the story about these bad apples or rough employees, and uh, the blame game is also a, a typical story. And as you mentioned, just that the most common explanations for for the receivers and givings, givers of the bribes were uh, to blame someone el- else or or that it was a misunderstanding. And according to your report, so this um, uh, blame explanation was given by 18% of the givers and 20. 
uh, 23% of the receivers, and the misunderstanding once mentioned uh, by 31% of the giver and 21% of the receiver. And um, lack of information and understanding is also mentioned, especially on the receiving end, 17%. Uh, but the financial reward does not seem to be a major explanation, where only three, uh, four percent of the giver and seventy percent of the receiver mentioned this one. So, based on your experience, Natalie, how should we, as ethics and compliance professionals, tackle this? I guess this information and knowledge part is is rather easy. But, but what about the fact that many seem to perceive that they have really not been responsible? How should we reason here? Well, I think one important lesson to learn from from this result is to to the really importance of emphasizing the individual responsibility for different decisions, and to in an organization underline to employees that bribery is an offense that you can be held liable for, even if you have acceptance from your from your manager or your boss, um, or or if you have an approval um, of what you're doing beforehand. And even if you have seen other people do the same. And, and in my experience, being out talking a lot about these issues, um, too few people are really aware of the personal criminal liability that you can incur on yourself when you're doing your job. So I think that is a, that is a major takeaway. Um, and, and also the result indicates that there is a lack of knowledge about applicable bribery rules. And, and this was especially the case if you dig a bit deeper into the results for, for recipients within the public sector. Um, and, and even though, as you said, the, the, or Anna said initially, the explanations could, could probably more be used as excuses or be seen as excuses sometimes. Um, I think that the explanations being used to say that it's a lack of knowledge still indicates that the level of knowledge and, and the caution that's required around taking benefits in certain situations is, is still too low. And this is also something that I have noted in my everyday work when I lecture on the topic of anti-corruption. And one takeaway from that is that it's just not enough to just have policies. They need to be vivid and you need to have a constant discussion around this um, in, in everyday business. And, and also when it comes to one of the most frequently used explanations, uh, misunderstanding, uh, one important takeaway, I think, is that a giver will often test a potential recipient's willingness to accept a bribe um, or engage in a criminal conduct by masking an offer as a joke initially. And um, this is something that we also know it's been pointed out in, in previous research, among others from the Swedish National Council for Crime Prevention, when they have looked at how infiltrators uh, get into authorities. And a takeaway here is the importance of making people that could be exposed for bribe offers aware of this method and to really encourage them and to emphasize the importance of reporting also jokes or attempts to get into discussions around criminal conducts. So, so you can, you can sort of stop that behavior quite early on. So those are a few of the takeaways I think you can, you can take away from these results. I think it's really interesting, Natalie, when you say this thing about jokes, because uh, isn't it so, at, at least my very personal experience from working within organizations, is that sometimes this is the, the sort of joking mode is used to belittle the rules, and it perhaps also 
um, discourages people from speaking up because you know everybody's you know joking about this and you shouldn't be silly and and so on uh, so uh, yeah i think it's it's uh, it's a bit scary to see that that it's it's like come across pretty strongly in in your report as well no i fully agree and and it just emphasizes the importance of of being very stringent on how you talk about these topics and and that it's important to react even to jokes um and and also having a culture where you joke about these things could easily um it could easily easily turn the culture into a poisonous culture um where where corrupt offenses are more easily to to be to be done in yeah it's um It's a very good takeaway. I have to be honest, I don't know with you, Nina, but in how many of your trainings have you really included and emphasized this joke and joking culture? Not really. I usually use it when we talk about harassment and that's that type of misconduct. But actually, it's very good to include that in the next training. Yeah, on these offenses as well. But yeah, really, really interesting. Um, well, then there are here in the report uh, a majority uh, of um, of the the convicted persons were were men um but but are there some differences between women and men can you see anything um, anything that would be relevant for us to understand when we work in organizations yes we we saw some differences and and as you said uh, most of the the convicted persons were men uh 84% in fact and and this is also something that goes hand in hand with with the knowledge that we have um already within the field that men seems to be overrepresented um in in corruption cases which leads to another uh, interesting question are are men more corrupt than women which we're not uh discussing today Uh, but what I found most interesting with the differences uh, between the explanation models being used by men and women were that women, to a higher extent, used explanations based on social expectations. And when I've I've reasoned with myself around this result, I think that one one explanation for this difference could be that female bribery offenses, at least in in the court cases that were included in the material, were often found within the healthcare sector. And a typical case in that situation is a caregiver, for example, within the elderly care that uh, receives a gift or a will from, or a caregiver that receives a gift or a will from a caretaker. And and in those cases, we see that the lines between the professional and the personal role have often become blurry. And we also saw in some cases that the uh, receiver explained that she, in those cases, had felt pressured to accept gifts um, from from the giver. And I think this again highlights the importance to really emphasize the personal responsibility and the risks you are exposing yourself of when you are accepting gifts or when you are not making sure that it's okay to um, to accept an offer. And, and another difference, which is also quite interesting, um, that the report shows is that men, to a much higher degree than than women, tended to use explanations that denied the occurrence of a bribery offense or placed the guilt on someone else. And if you want to be mean, perhaps this could be interpreted as men being less willing to take responsibility for their actions than than women. But that's just uh, a mean guess. I, if I come back a bit to this, um, when you said that in particular women uh, feel a pressure to accept uh, certain 
certain gifts uh, from from their clients. Uh, do you think that this combined with uh, the explanation lack of information is that I mean there there are rules saying that you can cannot accept an undue adva- advantage or however that's sort of labeled but then when you come into a practical situation that's actually where the knowledge is needed so how do you act when you are in a real situation where you know something perhaps is not right but but you know you don't know what you should do about it yes um and and often you can see that the the pressure of of accepting a gift that explanation model was often combined with lack of knowledge and i i think especially in, in some situations um within the healthcare sector uh, we we have seen that there is a need for more guidance on how to to act when someone is offering you a loan um or is offering you um a gift or or is um providing you something through a will several years after you have left your position. Um, so again, also think that this shows that we have more work to do in in really educating everyone on the applicable rules. So yes. So yeah, this is really interesting. So so because on the other hand, we have this explanation that, you know, let's blame someone else. It's a mis- misunderstanding. And then on the other side, we have that, you know, it's, you know, everybody does it. It's expectation. I have a pressure to do this. So, so very interesting. Um, in your report, so uh, if we go to the figures, so... Um, the explanation that uh, everybody does it or it's expected was uh, given by 70%, 7% of the give, uh, giver and 5% of the receiver of bribe. And another explanation is that there is a need, it's needed for the business relationship where 11% of the givers mentioned this and 3% of the receivers. Interesting. So, so it's like uh, you will not be able to do business if it's a certain uh, if a certain favor or payment is not made. So this is uh, uh, interesting, Kate. And as a side comment, we have to make so even though the men were overrepresented in the study, so in 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 this study, these explanations were only given by men. So so very interesting. But what advice would you have for the ethics and compliance professionals who hear this explanation? Well, I, I want to hear start with, and, and this was mentioned earlier, the the notion of bribery offenses being committed by by bad apples. I, I think it's very important to to considering what environment a bad apple could be able to thrive, or even if it's possible that a bad culture in itself can create bad apples, or or if bad apples can be able to spread in in a bad culture, and and explanations such as everybody does it or it is needed for business relationships could easily become truths in an environment where such explanations are possible to use. And I, I think that is thus is of extreme importance uh, as a compliance professional to communicate why it is not true that everybody does it or that certain favors are needed to do business. And and here I think it's it's very important that we remind ourselves or, or keep aware that ethical decision making is not something that we are born with or that comes natural in every situation, and that the cultural environments affect us tremendously, and and how the environment could be able to to create rationalization and explanation models. 
and and speaking a bit about cultures because i think these explanation models they they point to the fact that there might have been an underlying culture and to some extent i can only say point to because we have limited information in a court case we only see uh we only see the explanation we don't see the background and 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 so forth but but again referring to to uh, studies from the uh, Swedish National Council for Crime Prevention, they they have identified a couple of organizational organizational cultures that heightens the risk for corruption to thrive, and, and one such culture is a culture of efficiency, um, w- which is a culture that promotes results um, over almost everything else. And and in this context, and, and talking about the rationalization or explanation model that we need to do this to create business. Uh, I think it's important to really stress um, the, the, the importance of understanding how incentive structures can create grounds to use these kind of explanation models. And if only results, for example, are rewarded and no one ever asks the questions of how results are, are achieved, as long as they're good, this could trigger unethical behavior and also creates grounds to really rationalize unethical decisions. And, and this is also something that we have seen in, in many high-profile cases, I think. And something else I, I think these explanation models point to is, is and also another risky organizational culture is, is the so-called culture of informal rules where it's informal rules and often based on argumentation such as this is how we've always done it or everyone knows this is the only way to do it takes precedence over the written formal rules. And, and as a compliance officer, you need to be very wary of picking up signals of, of these two cultures and really kill those kind of truths. I think you made and, a really nice point uh, when, when, when men saying that, you know, I think in Nordics, uh, we seem to have this uh, thinking that we are honest and good people and we know how to do the right thing. But I think you mentioned all of those things that actually uh, uh, disables us in many cases to do the right thing. So very good takeaways. And I also think that in this context, and and this is not directed solely to compliance professionals, but the, the importance of, of really pushing for the need of leadership. And if leaders tolerate certain behaviors or if leaders tolerate certain jokes or a certain uh, way of talking about how business is supposed to be done, or if they look away as long as the results are good, um, you will probably risk ending up with a poisonous culture. So I think these kind of cultures, they, they require leaders that stop them, um, or you will have leaders that facilitate these kind of poisonous cultures. Exactly. Yeah, and, but that's a tricky, tricky question nowadays in the compliance community. I think it's a lot of discussion about responsible leadership, and we need leadership. And, and even in the updated uh, DOJ guidance, um, they talk, I mean, it's very evident that they talk about leadership and tone from the top in a, in a more concrete way. Uh, but I do think many organizations struggle to define what it means in practice. And I think you already mentioned a couple of couple of good indications of bad leadership. But could you, yeah, if if you if you would summarize like maybe a couple of points, really major major watchouts uh, for compliance officers when it comes to bad leadership. Well, I, I think that the f- if the focus is too much on results 
um, and there is an unwillingness to really uh, dig into how the results are achieved or you tend to let high achievers get away with things, even small things. I think that is a, that is a red flag. Um, and also having leaders not clearly demonstrate or or clearly express their commitment to ethical standards and, and talk about it in, in practice. Um, if you don't have that, I, I think that's also that's also a, a warning flag. Um, so so those are two two very important things I think. And also in terms of really making sure that the leaders are aware of what risks they could be creating um, when using certain incentives, for example, that you really dig into and, and create that that awareness and that, that you don't have any willful blindness um, or uh, not willingness to really dig into those things that are, are sort of more hard to talk about um, is of importance. Yeah, exactly. And... Uh, it brings to mind the discussion ethics talk we had with um, uh, Guido Palazzo, where he mentioned like a leader should, as you said, Natalie, should pause and reflect and uh, ask themselves, you know, could I be the one creating this environment or could I be the one actually doing these things? Exactly. And I think that um, also being able to um, pause and reflect when things are going good um, I think that's difficult for leaders, but but that is um, that is of, of really high importance. Yeah, yeah. So so many good uh, good tips and advices. Um, but we we need to round up. Uh, but we have a couple of questions still um, uh, that we wanted to to uh, explore with you. And one uh, that I have is um, is relating to. Uh, to, to whistleblowing and it's a hot topic at the moment because we've we've discussed bribery convictions uh, when there is an issue that has come to to light and actually there is a court verdict for it but we do know that many issues uh, do not come to the surface so do you have any idea or did you explore these cases uh, that came up uh, whether they're they were due to whistleblowing I really wish I knew, uh, but just having the court cases, you don't really get the history as to how things came came into light. Um, so, so honestly, I don't know. But, but however, as you, as you said, um, whistleblowing is crucial um, to really uh, detect um, corrupt offenses or, or rather unwanted um, actions in an in an organization. And my guess would be that quite a lot of the cases that we have included in the study came to light because of whistleblowers in in some form or or the other and i also here want to to emphasize the need for for good culture um and one other culture that could facilitate or heighten the risk of, of corrupt acts is a so-called culture of blindness um where where you don't want to see things that is going on. And this is all often combined with a culture of silence where it's not encouraged uh, to speak up and talk about things. And, and from my experience and being out in several organizations discussing these kind of cultures, I, I get indications that culture of blindness as well as culture of silence are quite frequent, um, which, is, which is quite disturbing. Um, 
and I also think that that here in in Sweden, uh, it's probably the case in in the other Nordic countries as well, that especially the culture of silence is quite common, especially since we like to have a consensus culture and and not um, say something that offends other people. So I think this, even even though I don't know anything based on the studies, um, I just want to uh, say that to really be aware of those two cultures as well, since they could um, create a heightened risk for corruption. And that's what we see in in the Nordic Business uh, Ethics Survey as well. This it's it's none of my business. You know, somebody else should 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 report these issues. I, I and uh, and that's. I tend to say that uh, no news is bad news when it comes to whistleblowing, but unfortunately, many organizations tend to think that we haven't had any bad issues or we haven't had cases, so we don't we don't have issues. Yes, and I, I also sometimes hear a fear that uh, whistleblowing systems would be misused, um, and that you will get a lot of reports uh, from people just complaining, and and there seems to be a hesitancy to. Um, um, to accept that, which I think is the bad way of viewing at it. I think the more you get up in the light, uh, the more you can handle. But I think that also goes back to leadership. You need to have strong leaders that can take conflicts and, and that aren't afraid of digging into uh, uncomfortable things and, and, um, and looking into that. So again, um, this is another um, aspect that really points to the importance of leadership. Definitely, fully agree. This re- reminds me of the discussion we had with Mikaela Alberi when she said that we have this thing in Nordic that it should be nice around the table. So it's a it's a kind of a, um, issue in Nordics that <laughs> sometimes we want it to be too nice, and and we see it difficult as as uh, to talk about these these uh, difficult topics. But it's been a great discussion with you. I think it's really already time for the last question. So. Um, we have this thing that we ask from all of our uh, podcast guests. So uh, because this is the ethics talk and uh, and we have here people who, who are um, uh, kind of uh, representing different sides of uh, sides of the um, business ethics, we also believe that it all comes to the kind of personal experiences. And that's why we want to always ask that ask the people to share some personal story of an ethical dilemma that uh, they have faced I- either in their professional or personal life. So could you share your story, Natalie? Well, I, I think we all face ethical dilemmas uh, every now and then. And and just from a professional perspective, I'm I'm a f- former attorney at a, at a law firm where ethics is is a core part of what you learn. And and of course, I I've encountered uh, ethical situations that I, for ethical reasons, are not are not able to share. Um, but but also just on, on the personal side, I think that you your ethics get tested every now and then um, in situations where you can choose to do. The right thing, or um, or the wrong thing, because no one is watching. Um, or you can have situations where where you don't know if you should um, tell someone something that you think might hurt them, um, even if it um, would be good for them in some sense to hear that. So I, th- I think that we we have uh, 
big and small ethical dilemmas all the time. Um, one one thing that I uh, find the more I, I work with these issues and the more I work with ethics is, is the importance of really acknowledging when you have an ethical dilemma at hand and not um, reason too much with yourself, but to talk to someone else and, and to include someone else in how to solve these ethical dilemmas or you might up end, end up doing wrong things. So, um, so without going into much details, this is how I handle my personal ethical dilemmas. I want to talk to to wise people on how to move move forward. Excellent advice. So thank you, Natalie. Thank you for joining the Ethics Talk and for having this really insightful discussion with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you.